ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew, the 12th chapter, as we continue our study of the book of Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew. As we look at all the Gospels, we find there a panoramic view of Christ. Uh, We're told of the incarnation and the birth of Christ. We're able to picture the beginning of His ministry, His baptism, the anointing of the Spirit, the temptation by the devil, uh, the beginning of His miracles in Canaan and Galilee. And you know, as we walk through uh, the Gospels, and in particular here in Matthew, we've already walked with Him through the Sermon on the Mount and other, and some of the other discourses are coming up, but uh, we watch in amazement as He uh, does so many things. Uh, feeding of the multitudes, the miraculous works, the miracles that He performed. Uh, we learn a, a lot about Christ as we read and study the Gospels. But we also learn much about ourselves. Uh, we seem to find a picture of every man somewhere in the Gospels. You find a curious, hesitant person in Nicodemus. You find a desperate, needy person in Zacchaeus. Uh, a self-centered, greedy uh, person in the young ruler, and and so many more. Uh, The Pharisees, though, as we've been looking at them here in Matthew, and we continue to see them here in Matthew chapter 12, they seem to comprise a distinct category of people. Uh, They picture the religious, the self-satisfied, the prideful, the un teachable people of the world. Uh, They are those who, more than any, ought to have understood the gospel, and they ought to have felt its power. And yet, because of position and knowledge and moral virtue, uh, we find that that's not enough to bring them to Christ. They balked at the revelation of Christ. They refused to admit their need for repentance, and they refuse to cast themselves upon the mercy of God in Christ. Now, in many ways, the Pharisees are the most perplexing and pitiful lot of human history. They should have understood, and they should have responded to the gospel, but they didn't. Now, they are not much different than many in our day. Many people who have heard and understood so much about Christ, and yet they have neglected to deal with their own spiritual condition. And I wonder this morning if we do do not have someone in that category this morning. Perhaps this includes you. You've neglected to deal with your spiritual condition. The gospel revelation calls for a believing response. But again, many will scoff, many will reject, many will delay or make excuses that will not be accepted on the day of judgment. I wonder, will you take with an honest look with me this morning at yourself in light of the gospel? As we begin here in Matthew chapter 12, and we're down to verse 38, notice with me, first of all, religious pretense. Religious pretense. It's odd and even spiteful that a group that had accused Christ of being in league with the devil would ask for a miraculous sign. 
The Pharisees and quite likely their allies, the scribes, had witnessed Jesus heal a man that was both mute and blind, as well as delivering him from demon possession. It was no small miracle. It took place before their very eyes, and they callously declared that Christ had cast out the demon and the other demons by the power of the devil. And the text would indicate that their comments came as a Pharisaic answer to the Lord's warning against blasphemy of the Spirit and the problem of a bad tree producing bad fruit. It was as though the stern preaching of Christ posed a question about the reality of their spiritual condition and what they would do with the revelation of Christ. Look at verse 38. And it says here, Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Now what were they looking for by their question? Did they desire to believe? And they just needed a little boost in their weak faith? You know, if that was the case, then none of us could fault them for their request. We all know of other occasions when the Lord granted to some with weak faith like Gideon and Hezekiah and Joshua. And I believe we can confidently declare that the Lord is ready to help those who are genuinely struggling with resting their faith in Him. But you know what? That's not the case with these religious pretenders. They scoffed at Christ. They even blasphemed. Why would they believe a miracle on demand? Any more than they would have already believed what they had witnessed in the healing and deliverance of this man that they had seen earlier here. I want you to notice, first of all, hidden motives. Hidden motives. I think it's very clear that they had hidden motives. Christ had publicly rebuked them. So now they sought to save face, if you will, with the crowd by asking for a miracle as though that was all they needed to believe. Master, we would see a sign from thee. Now this term sign here refers to an attesting miracle or a distinguishing mark. And Jesus then spoke of them seeking or craving for a sign which was more than just mere desire instead of a virtual demand for a sign, they expected Christ to perform for them. Look at verse 39, the first part it says, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. These men had already witnessed in a short time more evidence of Christ as the Messiah and the Redeemer than most would ever see in their lifetime. They were well-versed in the law and the prophets, and so that the connection between Christ's miracles and His teaching and the claims obviously squared with the record of the Scripture, yet they did not believe, in spite of all they saw and heard. You know, in contrast, we find John, toward the end of his life, declaring in 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. The Pharisees saw and they heard the very same Jesus, and yet their eyes were blind and their ears were deaf to the revelation of Christ before them. Their request of Christ, or their demand, I should say, was not because they wanted to believe, 
but to make a good showing before others. They were more concerned about the crowd. Their, I guess, presumed fan club, if you want to call them. They were more concerned about their fan club than they were the Son of God. Their hearts were stony. Their minds were made up. They would not believe. They simply wanted to play the religious game to impress those around them. I think about Joshua and how he struggled with the task ahead of him in leading the Israelites in the promised land. And the captain of the Lord's host appeared to him. Now that would have been a sure sign that the battle did not belong to Joshua, but to the Lord. We're also familiar with Gideon's fleece serving as a sign to move him toward or forward as, the, as Israel's leader in Judges chapter 6. But you know there's a grand difference here between the Pharisees' request for a sign and that of others. Joshua and Gideon, they desired to obey. The scribes, Pharisees, they didn't have any interest in obeying Christ. One was moving in the right direction, but through weakness of the flesh, they needed encouragement. The others were bent on following their own ideas and having no mind to submit to Christ. You know, God is never obligated to give us more evidence than He's already given us to believe. He's given us all that we ever could need. Paul reminds us that men are condemned for rejecting the common revelation of creation and conscience in Romans chapter 1. And how much more uh, are we condemned when we reject the special revelation of the gospel of Christ? And so let's move from the first century into our present day. Some among us, perhaps this morning, may scoff at what you've heard concerning Christ. You say that you need more evidence before you'll become a serious follower of Christ. You want Him to do something tangible for you, probably in the form of you're getting your own way in some particular area of your life. And so like the rich man in hell, you think that if something spectacular like that of someone coming back from the dead took place, that might just help you to believe. Do you know what? Here is the real issue. If you will not believe the truth of God's word this morning concerning the crucified and risen Son of God, then no amount of spectacular evidences will convince your stubborn heart to repent and believe. And Christ explains why. And that brings us to the second point here, and that is exposed hearts. Exposed hearts. He exposes the hearts of those prying for this miraculous sign he goes on to say, and he answered and said unto them, On evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. That word generation kind of groups together this category of people as a whole. The word seeketh there, as is, is already mentioned, is much stronger than a polite request. It's a demand. And in this case, it's a demand of God. Think about that for a moment. Have you ever, have you been listening to the gospel for many, many years perhaps, and yet you've never repented and you've never believed? And all the while you've made your secret demands of God. You know, God, I'll believe you if. I'll believe in you if. And then you add something of your liking, whether it was to do, had to do with a relationship you wanted or a position that you uh, desired, or amassing some material possessions or getting yourself out of a jam. No, God, if you'll just get me out of this jam, I'll believe you. 
God, if you just get me out of this hospital bed, I'll believe you. God will do something for you, then you'll believe. Listen, God has already done far more than you and I would ever imagine or deserve. God has given you life. He's given you air to breathe. He's given you family. He's given you friends. He's given you freedom. He's given you possessions. And much more, He gave you His Son to stand between you and the wrath that you and I deserve, bearing the divine judgment for us. Be careful about bargaining with God. Jesus called those with this mindset an evil and adulterous generation. Now evil points to moral evil. Those bent on following the path of sin and wickedness, whose God is their belly and whose real appetite is to satisfy their lust. The word adulterous there goes back to the language of Isaiah and Hosea that used the term to identify the apostasy and the idolatry of Israel. In other words, the adulteress pretend outwardly to acknowledge the Lord, but inwardly they pursue other gods in defiance of the revelation of the gospel. Their craving, their desire is for a, a sign to entertain them and to further their ambitions, but not to pursue truth. The focus of their lives is on the spectacular, not on centering their lives on what God would have them understand and to do. But you say, preacher, I pray. I read my Bible. I'm in church today. I join in the worship. And I say, what is your motive? Do you pray and you read the Word? you attend church and seek the Lord in worship so you might know the truth of God and obey Him? Or is it for a show? Or is it to get someone off your case? Okay, I'll go to church with you today. The Pharisees tried to throw the crowd off their request for a sign, but it was nothing more than just a trick. They had no intention of turning from their sin and believing in Christ. I wonder, do you have that same spirit? Notice, secondly, with me this morning, a faithful sign. A faithful sign. Jesus Christ never performed a miracle for show. Jesus was not in the entertainment business. The intention can always be found in His immeasurable love and compassion for those in need, never as a form of entertainment for an impoverished society. And so He lets the scribes and the Pharisees know that they have no claim upon Him, that He will not beckon to their request, even though they were the most significant leaders in Israel. But there would be a sign. Notice, first of all, Jonah's testimony. Jonah's testimony, the answer of Christ, proved to be puzzling to the religious leaders. 
Look again at verse 39. And he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Now like, just like us, the religious leaders knew well the story of Jonah. We all know the story of Jonah and the great fish. They recalled the prophet's reluctance and even rebellion against carrying the message of God to the pagan Ninevites. But God's purpose would not be thwarted. After God ordains a storm to threaten the lives of all those that were aboard the ship going to Tarshish, Jonah admitted that he was the one that was running from the Lord of heaven and earth, and that only the hope of saving the ship would be to cast him into the sea as an act of judgment. And they fearfully cast Jonah into the sea, and as he sank, the sea stopped its rage. The great fish swallowed Jonah, and for three days and three nights he agonized over his sin against God. But the third day came, and Jonah was vomited up into the dry land. It's always a nice word to use on Sunday morning. And he headed for Nineveh. He had a changed heart. Of course, he was probably an odd-looking man at this point. You spend three days in a great fish, a giant fish, and the gastric juices will have bleached you from head to toe. And he curiously bore the testimony of death and resurrection so he might preach the warning of God's impending judgment. And the sobering reality that an enemy of Nineveh warned them of God's judgment caught their attention. And the whole city repented. They turned to God. Jonah's testimony was believed in spite of Jonah's desire. By the way, the fact that Jesus Christ used the account of Jonah here I believe is evidence that Jonah and the great fish is not just another myth or fable that some have tried to say, you know, that wouldn't really happen. That's just a story. No, Jesus uses it here. That means it's true. Jesus is using Jonah's testimony to speak to the situation with the Pharisees. Notice, secondly, the gospel's authenticity. The gospel's authenticity. But Jonah is simply an illustration of a grander reality. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 40. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The single most important authentication of Christ in His work on the cross is the resurrection. Here was the prophetic word of Christ pointing to the single most important event of human history. That is because the resurrection is central, it's foundation, it's unimpeachable evidence that God accomplished through Christ His redemptive plan for the ages. And it was not done in a vacuum. Hundreds saw it and they gave testimony to the risen Christ. So the question that each one of us faces this morning in light of this sign is whether we have believed. Have you really weighed the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What does the resurrection tell us? A number of things. It tells us it declares that God's Son actually died, was buried, and rose from the dead. We do not actually separate the death and resurrection when we discuss them. One involves the other. 
the specific work of Christ on the cross and bearing God's judgment and perpetuating, uh, perpetuating God with reference to his wrath and judgment came first. Christ could not have been raised without first dying. So God's Son, the incarnate Lord, actually died a physical death to crush the power of death on our behalf. It declares he actually died. It declares that God accepted Christ's work on the cross. The resurrection is an uh, exclamation to what Christ did on the cross. It's a testimony to uh, what, when Jesus declared, it is finished. And so we can't add anything else to it. It declares that man's greatest fear and dread is conquered. You ask just about anybody on the street and what the most fearful thing that they, the thing that they fear the most probably is that they're going to die. And we will do our best many times to avoid the subject of death. In it we have to face our mortality. We have to face our helplessness. But here we find that in the resurrection, it tells us that Christ has taken the sting out of death. It bears witness to eternal life. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, never to die again. It is the source of hope for all the dark valleys through which you and I must pass. No doubt there are events that have happened to believers, even this past week or so, which were difficult to de deal with. We think of no doubt there were some born-again people down in Moore, Oklahoma. Some churches down there are dealing with the aftermath of that, that tremendous storm. I'd say that was a dark valley. Maybe you're facing a dark valley. But you know what? The resurrection gives us hope. It tells us that there, the ultimate triumph beyond the dark valleys that we face can be the joy that we have in Christ. I wonder, have you responded to the gospel mess, uh, testimony of the resurrection? If Christ was not raised from the dead, then you have no reason to believe in Christ. But if the resurrection is true, then the most foolish thing in the world is to turn away from it. Perhaps you remember the time when you heard the gospel and you repented of your sins and you believed in Christ. Perhaps as you've given your salvation testimony, you do so with an obvious emotion in your voice. You can't help but tear up, perhaps, as you think about how Christ gave His life for you. The power of the gospel testimony that Christ died and rose from the dead on our behalf found a lodging place in your, your, your life forever. Perhaps here, here this morning, though, and you've never repented of sin. You've never fully trusted Jesus Christ. You would not be able to give such a testimony. Is your testimony a genuine account of how you were saved, or is it just a story of a religious experience? Have you really listened and heeded the gospel? The third and final point here is certain judgment. Certain judgment. Divine judgment is inevitable for the human race. Because for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, judgment was satisfied at the cross and in the resurrection. But for those that have heard the gospel and have had some measure of light, 
and yet they have not repented, judgment is even more intense. Notice, first of all, ironic condemnation. The Pharisees were very proud of their heritage. And they were scornful of the Gentiles. And so Christ's warning would have been especially searing to think that Gentiles would testify against these religious leaders in the day of judgment. This is an ironic condemnation. Notice verse 41. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold a greater than Jonas is here. These Gentile pagans stand as a testimony against pharisaical unbelief. What irony. Gentile pagans that repented, condemned by their testimony, the most religious people of Israel that refused to believe. Consider that the men of Nineveh were thoroughly pagan. They were idolatrous. They were worshipers of Asher, the creator god, their creator god. They practiced superstitions and magical rites in their religious beliefs. Because they were warriors, they were known for their cruelty and their wickedness. They were without any teaching of Holy Scripture. They had no prophets of of the true God. And yet they saw Jonah's testimony. They heard his message and they repented of their sins. Christ explains that that will bear witness against this generation. since they had much less light, and yet they believed. I wonder, will, you, will anyone testify against you in the day of judgment? Will anyone testify because you refuse to repent of your sins and turn to Christ, though having great gospel light? Will it be the illiterate tribesmen that, have, uh, that lives in the primitive conditions, and yet when the gospel is explained to them, they believe? Or even though, though he heard only the simple stories, he believed. Will it be the avowed atheist that was smitten by God's truth in Christ and he repented? Will it be the man on death row that heard a simple message, gospel message, and believed before entering into the gas chamber? How many primitive tribes, impoverished villages, and illiterates will testify against those in America who have seen and have heard and experienced so much concerning Christ, and yet they have not repented and believed in Him. You see, there is no injustice in God's court. All the evidence will be ordered against us to show conclusively the many opportunities we've had to hear and to believe, and yet out of the folly of our own rebellion, we turned away from Christ. Will that be you on Judgment Day? I trust not. In fact, I beg not as I urge you to give heed to Christ and the gospel even now. There's an ironic condemnation, but there's also a point of judgment. The point of judgment our Lord describes concerns the example of the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south. How will the Ninevites testify against religious pretenders at judgment? Look again at verse 41. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, there is a greater than Jonas here. They had only an unwilling prophet to preach to them, but they still believed. The scribes and Pharisees had Jesus Christ, much greater than Jonah. And Christ called them to repentance, and yet they refused. Religious pretenders are 
all held accountable at this point. The preacher and the priest and the religious leader that paraded before their congregations week after week and yet never repented of their sins will be condemned by the repentance of the Ninevites. The Sunday school teacher and the Bible school worker and the seminary professor and seemed to know so much but never truly repented of their sins shall find the Ninevites testifying against them in the day of judgment. Here's a question that begs asking. If you realize that you're a sinner, then why do you not repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness? The second example here is the Queen of the South or the Queen of Sheba. You'll recall that she had heard rumors of Solomon's wisdom, so with great fanfare she made the long journey to Jerusalem to hear it for herself, and she went to great trouble to make this trip over dangerous and difficult terrain just to listen to Solomon. And notice what it says in verse 42, The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Again, the emphasis is on how much trouble she went to in order to hear and pursue listening to Solomon, traveling from what seemed to be the ancient world to, the, uh, to be the outermost parts of the earth. And she was more satisfied than she, was, she would ever imagine, and it was worth the pursuit. But Christ is greater than Solomon. The scribes and the Pharisees had the Messiah right there before them, and they did not even bother to investigate the biblical evidence or pursue the truth. They had made their minds up before they even started. Maybe you came to church this morning with your mind made up. I'm not going to listen to that preacher. I don't care how much he talks or how much he asks us to be saved. I'm not going to be saved. I'm not going to believe. You don't want to know the truth, so you're willing to go through life presuming everything's okay. Nothing's happened to me yet. Queen of the South's pursuit will condemn you at judgment. This passage is a serious warning for all who would presume upon their spiritual lives and eternity. There's no middle ground this morning. You either repent or you presume upon God's kindness in Christ. The sign of Jonah this morning calls you to trust in Christ. As I was preparing this message this week, I couldn't help but think of a testimony that one of the men shared with us. Some of us went and played in the Camp Chatech golf scramble this past Monday. And we had a time of awards and time of fellowship after we played, and one of the men asked to share his testimony. And he began, he listed all the things that he'd been involved in in the past 30 years in his church. He went down a, a long list, and I, I thought to myself, what is this, a testimony or a bragamony? You know, he's, he's done all these things. And then he read the passage in Matthew 7, Verse 22 and 23, which says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. 
And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So I listened to this man and how his, he came to realization that he is not saved. Although he was a choir member, a Sunday school teacher, he did all kinds of things. He helped build and work and repair his church for 30 years. Came to realize he was not saved. How the Lord worked in his heart, brought him to trust Christ in very recent months here. And I thought, that's possible in many, many churches today. Including this church. I wonder this morning if there's someone here today who's been religious, but you're still lost. The sign of Jonah calls you to trust Christ. Won't you come to him today?